someone's like, oh, this is a case study method. That's how we learn here at Harvard Business School. And I was like, wait, you learn about business through stories? And they're like, yeah, that's how we learn about it. And I was just, wait a minute. I would tell these stories in a deeper, more meaningful way. Not only because I thought we could do it better in audio than Harvard Business School does, but because we can make it available to everybody. You don't have to go to Harvard Business School to get your MBA. You can just listen to our show. What is up, you sexy bastard? It is your boy, the Business Roast Master, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I am talking to Guy Raz. He has a new book coming out called How I Built This, so he's going on a podcast world tour. And normally I say no to these people, but this guy is literally the legend of podcasting. Plus, he's got the coolest name, Guy Raz. Doesn't that sound nice? He's got over 19 million people each month listening to his podcast, and he's interviewed some of the biggest people in the game through his show. But this episode is actually way more sideways and interesting than I even expected. Here's three gigantic things you're going to learn in this episode. Number one, Guy's key piece of advice for living an interesting life. Number two, how the idea for how I built this emerged from taking a year off. And three, Guy opens up about how he's dealt with depression from an early age. You're going to enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more delicious ear nuggets along the way. Before we dive into the show, make sure you check out appsumo.com. It is the number one site online for software deals. So if you are starting or growing your business, this literally should be your homepage. Go sign up for the free newsletter to see what tools will help you grow or start your business. That's appsumo.com. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Reader7 from the US. He or she left a review saying, I appreciate his generosity and detail, great interviews and sound strategies. I look forward to each episode. Thank you so much. I look forward to being in your earlobes every single week in a non-sexual way. But I love you and every other listener out there. If you want me to shout you out in a future episode, leave a review wherever you're listening to this. I check every single one of them. What kind of results or experience do you want someone to get from your book? I want my book to be that person cheering you on in the darkest moments of, of your enterprise, running your enterprise, starting your enterprise, in the middle of it. It's, it's that book that's designed to be the person saying, you got this, you know, because everyone goes through moments where they're in crisis. And what I hear from many, many listeners to how I built this is, hey, I wanted to thank you. I, I started this business. We do this. Um, it's really been hard. I've wanted to give up so many times, but listening to your show has actually kept me going because I hear the stories of these people and how they went through really challenging times. And it's been really incredibly helpful. So that's basically, this book is like in the middle of the night when you wake up in a cold sweat with anxiety, I want you to be able to reach to this book and just open it up and read a story about somebody who went through the same thing that you're going through. How did you do it yourself? Our team did research on you. And one of the things that was, I thought was fascinating was your depression and some of the things you went through in your 20s. Because you know a lot of your content is about everybody else. So yeah. I was curious to hear more about your own journey of darkness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm happy rude. to talk about. I'm happy to talk about that. You know, I, I had some of that in the book. I took it out um, just because it, not because I was hiding anything, just because it wasn't relevant. But there are, I mean, this is a there are memoir ish things in this book. You know, I do talk a little bit about my my story and and the founding of the sort of creation of how I built this. But you know, I like to talk about that primarily because I think it's really important for other people to hear that, to hear those kinds of stories from people like me who they would perceive maybe to be successful or, you know, everything's working out and I got it all together. It's important that people hear from me that actually um, it's not always like that. And it certainly hasn't been in my life. If I can make a small contribution to destigmatizing depression, 
and anxiety, I, you know, I want to, I want to add to that destigmatization. Well, one, I want to uh, compliment you because I think one thing that we, I always think about restaurants. Cause I think we never know what happens in the kitchen. Yeah. I'm just like, Oh, Guy Ross is famous. and He's on that show. And, you know, you don't really think about that. You know, yeah. We, you know, found that you spent years as like a, you know, kind of a low level person. And we just imagine that you're born into this role. You're just born in this role. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and, you know, one of the, th- the reasons why I really do try and work and cultivate interns is because I remember what that felt like. I remember what it felt like when a, a famous um, NPR host, like, acknowledged me or said hi to me. I remember what that felt like. It was the most thrilling, validating thing, you know? I really do try and remember that every single day. And, you know, we're, we've been lucky on how I built this, which is out of my team, eight out of the 13 people who work on our team were former interns. It's funny about the intern thing now. Anytime you talk about interns, you're like, you got to pay them. You're not paying them enough. It's like, shut up. We're helping people out. They don't have to do it. It's people tricky. It's very tricky. I have very mixed feelings about it because when I started out as an intern, I was paid at NPR. It was uh, $200 a week. And that actually went a long way. I mean, I was, I was able to pay rent in Washington, D.C. in a room in the late 90s um, with that money. You know, I understand the challenge because on the one hand, if you don't pay, the argument is only people who, you know, who have money or come from families with money can do internships and it shuts out people who oh. don't. Hmm. Um, and, that, and that's why I think there's a push, like NPR pays all of its interns because they want to make sure that it's a little bit like, um, it's a little like a board, right? Like let, let's say you run a Fortune 500 company. Why are most Fortune 500 companies, why are their boards primarily white men? Not because they're biased and they're looking for white men. To the contrary, most boards want to have a diverse group of people. The reason why most boards are white men is because most boards are made up of former CEOs and most CEOs are still white men. And the reason why most boards are made up of CEOs is because the CEO of a company wants other CEOs on the board to advise him or her. Now, smart companies, smart Fortune 500 companies have gotten rid of that. And they said, you know what? We're not going to be a, an only CEO company. We're going to look for CMOs. We're going to look for CTOs. We're going to look for other kinds of people. And that's helped them become a better, better companies. It's the same thing with interns. It's like if you only, if you only do unpaid internships, you're, you're only going to get kids from a certain socioeconomic background. That's why. That's the challenge. But I, I have mixed feelings because it also means that some companies have to decide not to do internships at all. And that means that it denies opportunities for people to just kind of see, you know, kind of get their, their feet wet. What were some of the hard times that you went through and how did you uh, get through them in your 20s? The abbreviated version is I, basically a friend of mine recognized that there was something wrong and um, really helped me seek out help and somebody who could help me and diagnose me and, um, you know, give me medication. And that was at a time when, you know, it was really scary and secretive. You know, I was very secretive about it. Nobody knew. My parents didn't know. I didn't talk to anybody. But I was very embarrassed, unashamed, um, and felt like I, I had failed somehow. Um, and I, I would say this, which is, I don't know for sure whether certain antidepressants are effective or not. There's, you know, the jury is out. I mean, there's been a lot of studies into SSRIs and whether they're really, truly effective. But there is a placebo effect with many of these. And at least for me, whether it was real or placebo, you know, it did help me for a few years. It helped me kind of level out. And with the passage of time and as I become older, 
it doesn't go away. You just learn how to manage it better and you learn how to live your life with ups and downs, but they're not as dramatic as when I was in my early 20s and where I, I really was in a difficult place where I wasn't, didn't, you know, didn't want to live. So that I think is, is the, just the biggest difference. I feel for you and I definitely understand those ups and downs of uh, either entrepreneurship or in any, any sure. life. Yeah. It's funny. I felt that way last week. Yeah. I didn't feel depressed, but I felt like there was like some weight in my brain, like yeah. pressing it. Yeah. And um, it, was, it was a strange feeling. How did your friend notice? It's, she's my best friend to this day. My friend Sarah, um, she lives here near near me and uh, I live in, in Berkeley. She also lives in Berkeley. And, you know, I wasn't going to work. I wasn't showing up at work. And Sarah was kind of a mentor of mine. She's, she's, she's about six years older than me. And, um, she had been, she had been through it herself. She had been, um, treated for depression, anxiety, and her, and, and so she could recognize it in me. She came to my apartment in Washington, DC. This is the late nineties. And she was like, you need, you need to go see somebody and, and I'm going to tell you who to go see. Here's a number. You know, I was like that. I was very lucky. That is lucky. And did the, you felt it's funny. They, they were talking in that book, The Body Keeps the Score last night around. They gave these, uh, veterans placebo and, some of the, uh, the popular stuff, I think in the nineties, which was like, you know, Zoloft or Prozac, Zoloft. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And they said like for the veterans, it didn't make an impact. It said the placebo helped everyone. The veterans, the Prozac stuff didn't help, but for everyone non-veteran, it actually made a big difference. Yep. Is that something you still take today or? No, um, I haven't taken it in, you know, 15 plus years. M yeah. More than that. But, um, it was really helpful. It really did help me, you know, when I needed it. I felt I, I did. Um, so, you know, look, depression is, is, it's both mysterious and not mysterious. It's connected to circumstance, but it's also connected to biology and physiology and also to the intersection of circumstance and physiology. And this is why a lot of people in their early 20s get depressed because your brain is still growing. The executive function of your brain doesn't fully, you know, congeal until you're 29, 30 years old. And I mean, why, why is schizophrenia diagnosed at 21 for boys and uh, 18 for girls? Why not at 12? Why not at 40? Because it's a transition time in your head, right? And so, of course, schizophrenia is horrible and quite rare, but there's a transition time happening in, in your body. And it coincides with a, with life changes for many young people. You finish college. You're out on your own. The safety net is gone. Meantime, your brain, is already doing the things that a 20-year-old brain does. Well, 200 years ago, you were out in the fields growing crops. That was your purpose. You had a purpose. Your purpose was to work in the fields. Well, in the post-industrial age, and, in, and certainly in the modern age, you come out of college, your, your job is to find a job and to kind of begin your life. That's, that's filled with anxiety. And that combined with the things that are already happening in your head, that's a perfect storm. Yeah, I think that also relationships are different. I mean, I think you were in your farm town. You're like, well, I can have the cow or the girl. I guess I'll just take her and that's who's going to be my wife. That's right. And now it's like, uh, I'm recently single, which has been a challenge. And dating is, just, uh, you know, I literally was just getting off the phone before this call with my friend who was crying because the guy wasn't ready to commit. I don't think it's unique, but it's just yeah. like a different type of problems that I don't know if they were, I don't know, just different ways of living. Not say it's better or worse. I am at a point in my life now. I'm in my, my 40s. I'm married. I've got two children. And I feel very fortunate that I don't have to go through the experience of dating and 
all those things. But look, I'm also a, a weirdo. I mean, my, my wife and I, we met when we were 25. You know, I got lucky. I found the person that I was supposed to find. Did you know right away when you found her that it was the person? Yeah, she didn't. I did, but but I really did. I met her at a barbecue. I had no idea. I actually didn't meet her at the barbecue. I saw her at a barbecue. I didn't talk to her. And I called my friend the next day and I was like, who is that person at your barbecue? And she was like going through the list. And then finally she stops on Hannah. And she's like, oh, she's my new roommate. She just moved in, in with me. And then I had my friend bring Hannah to a, a party the next weekend. And, and Hannah was not interested in coming. But in the last minute, she decided to go. And uh, we met and talked and, and went out, went to dinner. I was about to leave to become the correspondent, the East Europe correspondent for NPR. This is in 2000. I was about to leave. I was like a month away from leaving. And she's like, why are you asking me out on dates? You're leaving. And after the first date, I was like, I just think we're going to stay together. And we were apart for like two years. I was in Berlin and she was in Washington, D.C. And I, we were dating for a month before I left. So 20 years later, here we are, two kids and married. When I was in my teens, I was like, I want to be rich. I want to yeah. have 30 million by 30. Yep. I, just because it sounds cool. Like yeah. if you make 29 by 30, it just doesn't have a good ring to it. Right. And I guess I was just wondering for you, was your vision like, I want to be a famous correspondent or host? And then was it, because I, I guess I thought by 30, I'd be married with kids. Yeah. But I never, I never realized I had to do the work. I just thought they it's had a lot of work. Yeah. I think that my vision, my vision has changed and it evolved. But I think that from a, a pretty, you know, I would say from my teenage years, I started to get into journalism. It was interesting to me. We had a student newspaper in my high school and I joined that. And, and then and when I went to college, I did that. And, and it was, what I loved about it was um, the opportunity to talk to anybody because I am actually naturally an introvert. I'm not somebody who goes to a party and I'm not the life of the party. I don't go to a room and, and start, you know, waxing and telling these incredible tales and spinning stories. Um, it's just not who I am. But once I had a notepad in my hand and I had to ask a question, I could say, hey, Noah, um, my name, hello. Or I could say, hello, excuse me, what's your name? I, I'm doing a story for the newspaper and can I ask you some questions? Um, it was much easier for me to approach people. And I loved that because I, I really did want to connect with people. And for me, journalism and reporting was a way to do that. It was a way to connect with people. That was my entry point to making connections because I'm not naturally at ease around people. I don't naturally go up to people and say, hey, how are you doing? I'm, I'm Guy. Even to this day, even though you know pe people often know me and or they'll know who I am, um, it doesn't come easily for me. So that that was really pretty early on, I would say, when I was a t already a teenager and, and in college, knew I wanted to do this. And you know, I had a chance to live abroad when I was a junior in college, and I, I just had a dream to be an overseas reporter. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go back to London. I wanted to go back to, to Europe. I wanted to, to tell these stories. And so that was kind of my idea, that one day I would be a foreign correspondent and travel the world and, and go to these exotic places and meet interesting people and tell these stories. And I got to do that. That was, that was what I got to do. I never sat down and said, you know, I want to be a famous um, host of a program. It, was, it really was very simple. It was, I want to have an interesting life. I want to do things that are interesting to me, things that keep my brain fired up, you know, and journalism, reporting, interviewing people, telling stories, that's what did it for me. And that kind of 
over time evolved into what I do now. Do you have a vision for the future now? I like your interesting life thing. I think that's amazing. I don't have a plan. It's not like I sort of have a clear plan of what comes next, right? I've got what I get to do now is the result of a process of a natural evolution. Like how I built this came because I took a class, I took a year off as a journalist in 2008. I did a fellowship, a journalism fellowship. I got to do free classes at Harvard for a year. And I took a class at Harvard Business School And the first day I'm expecting like algorithms and charts and graphs and like they hand out a document and it's the story of Starbucks. And I'm like, what's this? It's a deeply personal account of how Howard Schultz started Starbucks. And someone's like, oh, this is the case study method. That's how we learn here at Harvard Business School. And I was like, wait, you learn about business through stories? And they're like, yeah, that's how we learn about it. And I was just totally blown away. I I, I was like, wait a minute, that's how you learn about business? And and these stories were so good. And I knew back then, 2008, that one day I, I would do this. I would tell these stories in a deeper, more meaningful way. Not only because I thought we could do it better in audio than Harvard Business School does, but because we can make it available to everybody. You don't have to go to Harvard Business School to get your MBA. You can just listen to our show. And in 2016, we did that. We launched the show. Again, like that was inspired by this just this experience I had. You know, I I was doing another show at the time. I was doing a show called The TED Radio Hour, which I continued to do until 2019. Similarly, you know, I do a children's show. It's called Wow in the World. It's a science show. And that that came about because I met this incredibly talented children's radio host, Mindy Thomas, who was a show on Sirius XM. And she was like, let's collaborate. And we did. And then eventually we said, let's go off and start our own podcast. We can do this, you know, and and here we are now, you know, four years later and, and wow, in the world is, you know, a really fun, successful podcast. So I don't have a plan for what's next. It's more about I have my eyes open for interesting opportunities and, and, and things that are interesting, things that get me going, get me charged up, get me out of bed. I am very lucky. I get to spend my life asking people questions and learning from people and learning from their mistakes. It is an incredible privilege. And as long as I can continue to do that in some form, I, I think I'd like to continue to do that. Yeah, I like the part on interesting life. If, you know, one thing I was thinking, well, two things taking a step back on that. At a dinner party, if you can have a Guy Raz question for dinner parties, what would be your dinner party question? A question that I would ask people? Yeah, because you said originally, like, you like that being a journalist gave you, you got to ask the question that helped you connect with people. I was trying to think yeah. of, you know, dinner parties always like, what do you do? I'll start by saying I am the worst dinner party guest ever. And and I, I often see this on Twitter, not often, but every now and again, somebody will say, my dream dinner party. And they'll be like, you know, Tim Ferriss, Guy Raz, you know, I don't know, Pink, Noah Lady Kagan, Gaga, Noah, Noah Kagan, Kagan. right? Okay. It'll be a bunch of people on there. And it's very nice. I'm very flattered. People will put that on Instagram. And I keep thinking, of my, and I think to myself every time, like, you do not want me to a dinner party because I'm awkward and quiet. I'm not good in big groups. If it's just two people on one side of the table and me and, and my wife Hannah on the other side of the table, that's great. I'm okay there. Once you start expanding it out beyond four, it's very hard for me to navigate a dinner party. You know, I've been to dinner parties where like everybody was really, really knowledgeable and interested in like the law. Like they were all lawyers. 
and they were all talking about lawyer stuff. You know, I'm relatively well-educated and, and moderately intelligent. I can kind of keep up with a lot of conversations, but this one, not at all. And it's no fun to sit at a dinner party, quiet and silent at your table, eating your food, you know, quietly while everybody's talking about something you have no idea about. So that's no fun. But I would say if it was a, <laughs> if it was a, a dinner party where everything, like the chemistry, everything just gelled, right? And everybody was like on the same page, like everybody was in a flow state, you know, just ideas were coming out and everybody was talking and everybody was really open. It's very hard because I'd want to know a lot about everybody. To know one thing about somebody, just it, it's not enough. To ask one question is not enough. I mean, you can ask, what's your greatest fear? What's your greatest desire? What's your biggest failure? The reality is that those questions don't always elicit great answers because people answer those questions in the moment, whatever's at the top of mind. And then later on, they'll say, oh, you know what? It was something, it was this thing I should have actually said. The reality is every single person you pass by has a story to tell. Every person you pass by has gone through a crisis, has had heartache or heartbreak, has suffered loss, has been in a really difficult place, um, has probably not been kind to people too. Like everybody's very complex. And what I find is that when you really know someone's story, it's very hard not to empathize with them in some way. It's a little bit like why families are so complex, but also there's that bond, you know, because families, there, there can be, you know, tensions and, and anger and hostilities within families, but you know each other's stories, you know, and that bond never, never goes away. You know, I remember this year, that year that I did a, a sabbatical at Harvard, it was called the Neiman Fellowship, the other uh, journalists on the program, we had this requirement. Once a week, every journalist stands up in front of the, the 30 others and tells their life story with photographs, with music, and serves food based on their background or culture. Because we had journalists from all, all around the world. It was one of the most powerful experiences of my life because you start in September with a group of people and you mingle and, and then very quickly find the people that you're naturally kind of have things in common with and you hang out with them. But then like every week, you know, this person who you, you know, you smile, you say, hi, how are you? But you really don't know. They stand up and you find out like, you know, their parent died when they were three and their dad was, a you know, in a shipwreck and then they were um, orphaned and then they were like, you know, all these insane things that you just don't know about somebody. And when I learned about people's stories, I was just so moved by them. And that's something that we don't, we just, our society is not structured to handle. Like in a perfect world, we would all really know each other's stories, you know. In a perfect dinner party, I would want everybody to tell their story, their life story. Yeah, it's beautiful. Sometimes when people are like, I'm gonna tell a short story, I'm like, why don't you just make it long? Yeah. And I had one guy years ago, he's like, hey, tell me your life story in 30 seconds. And I literally was like, how about you? I was just like, dude, like 30 seconds. Like, dude, I've been like, you know, almost 40 years. Like there's some stuff in there, man. Like yeah. I almost felt like it was like discounting my life. How do you think more people can live an interesting life? Very simple. It's very, very simple. We in our society, in our culture, elevate intelligence. We think intelligence is so important. And the reality is intelligence is incredibly overrated. We all possess the ability to choose to be curious. That is all I do. 
The only thing I do is I'm choosing to be curious. I interview a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs who started businesses that I'm not that interested in. Three years ago on How I Built This, I, I think I did my first interview with uh, somebody who started a cosmetics company. It was Dermalogica, Jane Merwin, who, who sold it to Unilever for a quarter of a billion dollars. I was not interested in cosmetics, okay? I was not interested in skincare products. No interest. Today, we've probably done 10, 12 episodes on cosmetics or skincare. It is endlessly fascinating. I have learned so much about how to start a business through these incredible entrepreneurs, whether it's Vicky Tsai of Tatcha, Jane Werwand of Dermalogica, Bobby Brown, Joe Malone, I mean, on and on, you know, just incredible stories. And also the science of building a cosmetics brand is endlessly fascinating. I naturally am not drawn to that, but all I did was choose to be curious. And anybody can make that choice. It's very simple. Having an interesting life is just choosing to be curious, which means exposing yourself to ideas, to books, to themes, to shows, to people that you wouldn't normally go to. It's just choosing to do it. In our company and my YouTube and, and the things we put out, a lot of it is helping underdogs or we call them sumo-lings. Do you think there is an exact science and formula for starting and successfully having a business? I don't think there's a formula, but I think there are some certain principles. The basic principles are, you know, you want to start by thinking about what is the problem you're trying to solve, right? That every business essentially is trying to solve a problem. It doesn't mean that every business is offering something that's never been offered before because Somebody who runs an, a, an HVAC company or is a, a plumber is an entrepreneur. A co plumbing contractor is an entrepreneur. You run a corner store, you're an entrepreneur. But what you're doing is you're solving a problem. And the problem might be, well, in my town, you know, the HVAC company that, that exists sucks. I'm gonna build a better one. I'm gonna do a better service. Or the corner store in my, in my neighborhood sucks. They don't offer anything good. I'm gonna actually have one that has really good prices and offers things that people really need. So it's solving a problem that you have and that you believe a critical mass of other people have. If a small group of people have that problem, you've got a small business. If a massive, giant number of people have that problem, you've got Instagram, you know? Um, you've got a scalable business. And so it really begins by, by looking for problems out in the world that you believe need to be solved and that you can solve. And from there, you know, it's a... There are different paths to, to kind of figuring it out. But basically, there are certain elements that are key. You've got to do the research. You've got to spend time learning about the industry. If it's something that has to be made in a factory, you've got to really learn the ins and outs of it. You've got to build a business plan, which will collapse and crumble, but, but at least it will give you some structure. And it could be very simple. It could be two pages. And in some cases, you've got to go out and find some money for it. So there are certain things that, that are common to, to many, many businesses, but the nuances are very, very different. If, it, if, if there was a formula, I think everyone would do it and everyone would be That's successful. Right. That's right. I think there's better ways that I've observed. Has it been weird for you? Because can I, can I give a tiny bit of suggestion or feedback for sure. you? Sure. I think when I hear you interview all these entrepreneurs, I'm like, well, Guy hasn't built a very successful business. And I don't mean that as an insult. No, no, no problem. But what is an entrepreneur? Right. And I mean, there's people who are better journalists, like some people are better coaches yeah. than players like Bill sure. never played. But I think this is just a tiny thing. I feel like you should talk more about all the things that you're inventing and creating at home. Well, one of the things I don't talk about is the, are the businesses that I've created. Right. Dude, I think you got to do that a little bit. Yeah. man. like, I, so, I think I would totally it'd make me more like 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, so I, I have my production company, Built It Productions, which co-produces How I Built This, which is an incredibly successful um, and profitable program. I produce Wisdom from the Top. I produce a show with Spotify called The Rewind. We have books and we've got um, events that we do. So, and then I've got a children's production company that produces Wow in the World, and we are a really successful company. They're both small businesses, but they're very successful. I'm super proud of that. You know, I don't, I don't talk about that too much, not because, not for any other reason besides what I'm trying to do is to really pull ideas out of the people I'm talking to. And, you know, from time to time, people ask me about my businesses and, and the things I do, and I, I'm happy to talk about it. It's just never really been my focus, you know. I think the idea of what, what makes an entrepreneur also is there's a lot of mythology around it. You know, I think a lot of people think, well, an entrepreneur is somebody who's a big business or, you know, is this type of person, that type of person. Most everybody around you does entrepreneurial things all the time. Like even before I had my businesses and I was a reporter working for NPR, you know, I would land in Eastern Turkey. I would have to tell us, I have to be on the air on all things considered by 4 p.m. that night. I would know nobody. I'd get to the airport. I'd have to kind of figure out a way to get to the hotel I was staying at in a city I'd never been to. I'd have to walk around town finding anybody who spoke English to find a translator to help me and use bits and pieces of, of some pidgin Turkish. I'd have to find, uh, you know, sometimes a driver. Like, And I'd have to, you know, you've got to kind of get this stuff together. You've got to build a team quickly and you start reporting. So there are elements of entrepreneurship in, in most everything that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that what I try to do with the show is to demystify it. Because I don't think that this is a closed club. I don't think it's something that only, you know, some people can do. It's a little bit like podcasting. You know, there are a million podcasts out there, right? And a very infinitesimally tiny fraction of those podcasters have extensive broadcast experience. Very, very few mm. of them do. Most of them are just podcasting, right? It doesn't mean that they don't have things to say and, and, and things to offer. So, you know, my feeling is, look, I have now interviewed more than 300 of the most, many of the most famous entrepreneurs in the world and about another 300 Fortune 500 CEOs. And I have a vast database of knowledge and information from all of these interviews that really what I want to do with it is to give it away. I want people to be able to access it for free on my shows. And, you know, with the book, the book's 20 bucks. That's basically the idea. That's why I do, the, do it the way I do it. But, you know, I understand. I understand. People often ask me to talk more about, about myself, my journey, my story. And I do, just not so much on the show because the show is about my guests. Is it weird to share about yourself on the book when a lot of your show is about everyone else? And a lot of a journalist yeah. is about everybody else and now this is about you. I come from this tradition in journalism where you don't talk about yourself. I mean, even back when I was a foreign correspondent, I mean, there were occasions where there was gunfire around me and it was close by or an explosion. And I, I couldn't say, I heard an explosion or the gunfire narrowly missed me. I would say, a reporter was almost hit by gunfire. Like we had to talk about ourselves <laughs> in the third person. This is 20 years ago. A reporter is shot. He's bleeding right here. But uh, Exactly. So uh, I come from this tradition where you don't talk about yourself. And it's only in the last couple of years where I've started to get more comfortable with that. Again, not because I'm hiding anything. It's really because I've always wanted to showcase other people, but I understand there has been an interest in me, what I do, my story, my, you know, my show, the different things that I do 
professionally. And that's really nice. It's really great. I, I, I feel really grateful and valid. It's very validating that people want to know more about me. Uh, can I make a marketing suggestion on your website to help you sell more books? Sure. Is there any re- So one of the things that Tim and me and a lot of these guys that have gotten relatively popular online, they do a lot of email marketing. And I, yep. I know you're busy and you have a lot of things. It seems like on your site, you really don't do anything with email. I think we, we collect email addresses if you want to, if you want to put it up there. Oh, you mean like a newsletter type thing? I'm just saying like you can, like if you want to 10x the sales of your book, even if you put it up today, like on the top header, you should put like get my newsletter or have, even if, if you know, that's the lightest. I feel you could probably do a few more things like a pop up potentially. And you don't even have to send a lot of newsletters, but now you have all of the, because for your podcast, you have to put out an episode for an email, send the email and you get direct sales instantly. Yeah. No, it's a good idea. I mean, we do have a lot of email emails from folks who've been to our live shows. So we've got a pretty um, nice email list of people who have who have been to How I Built This Shows. But you're right. I mean, um, you know, part of it is, uh, you know, you kind of have to pick your battles. And, and my battles are, are, are pretty intense. Uh, my, my normal days are pretty intense. But that's good. That's a good suggestion. I mean, if you have someone on your team, I'm happy. This is like what we do in our businesses. We have you know, happy to talk to someone on your team and tell them what to do. Or yeah, show them what, what tools. I would love to do a, newsletter i just um I, you don't I have to can't. even do any work that's the beauty of it uh, so how do you do a newsletter so I, I will say i built my own with our team a few years ago because i was tired of paying all these people and doing all this stuff so what we built just automate it's free i can't sell yeah. it to you unfortunately we pull in all of your instagram we pull in all your twitter your youtube your podcast and it just automatically creates a weekly email that can get sent to your audience oh really Wow. Yeah, because right now the problem with a lot of these things is, you know, it's funny. I heard when I mentioned it to you, the first thing is like, ah, I'm already doing a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> right, um, right. Like, but how I do I do a things, newsletter? Yeah, yeah. I think the two things with that is that how do you make it more of a template? So, like, your show is a little bit of a template. You have certain questions and styles of flows, and so yeah. for the newsletter, we we it's called SendFox. It's like how do we help content creators consistently send communication? Because huh. I will tell you, the best way there's basically two ways. I've helped people sell a lot of books. I've helped Tim sell his book. I've helped Ryan. Yeah. Holiday. I've helped yeah. Ryan Holiday. I've helped Eric Rees. Like I've helped most of the, most of the Silicon Valley people. Not wow. a lot. Newsletter is number one. Newsletter is like the number one way you sell a book. Right? Wow. There's also other things. I don't know if you're doing a, are you doing a YouTube strategy at all? Yes. I'm starting to do some YouTube. Um, or things. like, or even getting on the YouTubers, even yeah. if you don't want to do the, the videos. Yeah, just, yeah. Can you, do you have a bunch of YouTubers you're going to go talk to? Yes. Apparently, Dude Perfect are big fans of my show. And oh, so, sweet! And you know, we're getting a lot of um, people coming to the website now who are, yeah, who are looking to buy the book. So it would be great to get them to also join the newsletter. Yes. Well, yeah, and then whenever you want to have live events or whatever, it's literally email and results. I really appreciate that, Noah. Yeah, no worries. I know it's this is like you're on the. It's funny you work so hard on the book and the show, and then this is like the most important part. But it's like, yeah, I know. Oh man, it's a, it's a little bit of a grind. So I'm happy to help. Thanks, Noah. I really appreciate it. Same here, man. Cheers. Cheers. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. And make sure to check out Guy's book called How I Built This. Don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel if you want more juicy business content just like this. That's youtube.com slash okdork. Next, text a friend you love them. Hey, amigo, let's make some bread together this weekend. And before you go, tweet at me at Noah Kagan and let me know what you thought of this episode. I love hearing your feedback. Also, instead of me promoting one of our products like I normally do in the outro, I want you, yes, you, to say one thing that you're proud of for yourself today. You can either tweet this at me or just say it to yourself. It could be something small like you made your bed or you made a good coffee or you had a nice walk, but give yourself a little bit of credit today. You're the best. 
Finally, a couple shout outs to my amazing team. Special thanks to Jason, who does all of the podcast editing. You can hire him away from me at podcasttech.com. Don't raise his rates, please. And thank you to David, Mitchell, Jeremy, Michael, and Jen from the Dork Team for all of the amazingness you do. And finally, shout out to Bronte Mahoji. I hope I said your name right. Who is our marketing manager at AppSumo. And thank you for always making those AppSumo deals shine. Have a cheese-tastic day. What's your favorite? Nothing.